Today you will find a four-part outline on the back of your bulletin if it's helpful to you. Full of mirthful songs, verse 1 through 7. Universal praise due, verse 8 through 12. Close at hand, verse 13 through 19. And the church's prayer, verse 20 through 22. These are the sections that I will cover. <clears throat> Some of you will remember I did a three-part series. I think it was three parts. Sometime previous. And this psalm has moved me yet again. And so we're taking just a, a slight break to do at least one, one full sermon outside of the book of Acts. <clears throat> and I intend to get through all of it. And so I'm going to be selective on what I cover and what I apply, <clears throat> but, and we'll take it section by section. I'll read that which is pertinent. <clears throat> First, as we look through, this is a wonderfully uplifting psalm. It is extremely positive, and it yet starts out with five different coordinate commands, all related to the realm of music among the saints, applying very broadly. And, and these commands, actually, we could probably do a whole sermon on them, but they encompass so much. It's, it's really quite comprehensive. It covers volume, types of songs, the use of instruments, the necessity of practice for excellence, the creativity to produce new content, and the organization of distinct melodies with the voice and with instruments for the purpose of congregational singing. <laughs> A few verses. It's amazing. Uh, every evangelical church needs to hear this. Um, this is an, an amazing set of commands, which I think we fall greatly short of in our day. And yet I'm not going to spend all my time on here. It's just a catalog of the things we're called to <clears throat> simply to sing unto the Lord uh, because this is the gift or this is the instrument that is installed in you as you are knit together in your mother's womb. Every one of us is equipped to um, answer at least the portion of this command which is related to singing together. <clears throat> so that will be my main emphasis though members of the body have have worked hard and not to work hard to use instrumentality that I won't cover today. But there are three reasons that are given in the scripture here for why we ought to be a singing people, specifically singing with joy in our hearts. The two that are really obvious come after verse four because it begins with F-O-R, four, the word of the Lord, and then he describes two of those. But if you're not reading carefully, you might miss one that is super impactful that I want to focus on just for a minute, and that is in verse 1. Shout for joy in Yahweh, O you righteous. And here's the reason. Praise befits the upright, or it's, it's fitting for the righteous to praise. That, that is an assertion that is the reason for why we ought to do it with joy. Here, <clears throat> the Lord is telling us that joyful, thankful, loud, skillful praise harmoniously corresponds to the Christian life. In other words, there's nothing more natural for the Christian than being full of mirthful songs it is as natural as a mother with her nursing infant under her tender care. This is how God designed the world. That's how fitting it is. It perfectly fits. Which means the opposite is actually true. And sadly, uh, I'm, I'm reading through Abrakel, and he's part of the Dutch Reformation. And he laments how little singing, <clears throat> especially in the menfolk, is included in the Dutch tradition. And 
<clears throat> I, I would just say, in light of this text, if that is natural, this is how God designed the world, the opposite then is true. That, that's, that means there's nothing less natural and disturbing than a songless and joyless Christian life. It's not fitting. It's actually as natural as death, which is a great intrusion that Christ personally will slay with the brightness of his coming. <clears throat> but... When we're thinking about musical songs to God, there are two other reasons that we should capture. Verse four and five, for the word of Yahweh is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of Yahweh. This is on the basis of the Lord's character we ought to praise. Everything about God's attributes fuel our worship to him. These verses show that he is perfectly righteous, faithful, and merciful in heart, word, and deed. And therefore, all of these things which are seen both in creation and specifically in his word are the things that should propel us to joyful singing to him. Further, as another reason, the third reason, in verse six and seven, It is said, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deep in storehouses. This is the third reason. That is his power. um, Excuse me. The the source for which God um, intends to communicate to extol him is the fact that he is almighty in power his very word has created all things from nothing he commands he breathes it out and it becomes he says let there be light and there was light in the span of six days glorious in power and therefore to be worshiped as such you and i exist just as the world and the heavens heavens because He spoke and it came to be. So his power, his character, and the fact that it is fitting with the Christian life is why we ought to sing. Now to some doctrinal instruction here. This means that singing to God with our instrument of the voice is to be categorized in your mind as a happy Duty, duty, obligation, command. It is, in this way, an act of righteousness to the Lord. I don't know if you've ever thought about singing that way. You think about somebody filled with virtue. You should not think about just their integrity and those sorts of things. You should also think about them joyously singing to the Lord It is an act of righteousness, therefore it's commanded. Therefore, further, we can say that simply singing songs themselves uh, is not what is commanded. We're not talking about everything the scripture says about singing, but uh, we can't just simply sing whatever we want. They ought to be focused around the things that the scripture reveals, that is, his power, his character, his glory, the things revealed both in his creation and his world. These are the things that we ought to be singing about. In other words, we should be desiring to sing robustly biblical things in our lives and removing other things that are not. Improving at these things then is not just a matter of indifference. Or preference. It's actually a matter of sanctification. Have you ever thought about honing your voice? Or if you play an instrument, honing your fingers as sanctification, you ought to. That's what's being told to us here. Saying, I can't sing, is to deny and to oppose God. It's an act of rebellion. So we must sing. We must lift our voice. It's commanded to not do so is an act of treason against the Lord. And we are all in different places. Uh, The voice is a muscle. 
you and I would be uh, right to, though not spend our lives bodybuilding necessarily, <laughs> we, we ought to get physical exercise and do these sorts of things with our body. And in fact, to take care of your body as a temple in the Lord is an act of righteousness. This is uncontroversial, but the same is to be said about the muscle of the voice and taking care of it as such so that you might happily sing to God. I'm happy to say that this church, since this is a word of consolation, by the way, I want to be specific about the applications that I'm making to you so you know what I'm doing in all my sermons. Uh, I'm happy to say that we've grown here significantly. Uh, In this church, when I first came, I heard from pretty much every member of of those who served in the music ministry as well as the congregants here that they would get discouraged from time to time. It's not a big deal in in their minds that they couldn't hear anybody. And a number of times recently, both from visitors and from each other, I note comments that have been made, and it's really sweet to hear um, that people are happily encouraged by being able to hear all the voices. Our volume has increased significantly in the last three years, and this is a mark of your growth and faithfulness to God. You should be thank you should be happy about this. This is something that should be continued continued by each one of us, wherever we're at in the scale of singing. I, to be on not, not the best, <laughs> mediocre at best. So what is our duty? What is required in this text is, is even broader than personal application. It's actually to create a culture within both the church and the home of skillfully mirthful songs Righteousness takes work, doesn't it? Certainly it does. Thus, we ought to be working hard at singing in our homes, at the table, at family worship, personally, in our devotions and throughout the day. Although we should say something at another time in another sermon about singing sad songs, I'll just point out about those sad songs which we sing are also... um, so punctuated by the reality that is here. That is, even in the darkest of songs in Scripture, save, save one psalm, there is a, a punctuation of joy and delight in the midst of bitter sadness that even in the, in the darkest songs that the Christian sings, they most all the time end in a positive joyfulness and trust in the Lord. Such should be uh, the case then for most of our songs to be regularly mirthful, happy. If if you don't know what mirthful means, it it just means um, that that when we're singing, it's accompanied with with gladness and cheer, Uh, sometimes even uh, laughter insofar as you can do that and sing. That may be a little bit difficult, but the connotation of that is what I'm getting at. So I encourage you, this winter, as your home gets cold, warm it with the mirthful zeal of singing hymns and psalms with your family. Now, moving into the next section, verse 8 through 12, called Universal Praise Due in, in my outline, the first portion of the psalm is focused on the saints, but then here there is a move outward to focus on the rest of creation. You see that in verse 8? says, let all the earth, let all the inhabitants of the world fear Yahweh, stand in awe of him. What is this call? to the inhabitants of the world. Well, naturally, and rightly as Christians, it is the call of, to faith in Christ Jesus. This text is not for the church in the Old Testament alone. It, it is for us as Christians. We're to read it in light of the scripture which has been handed to us. It is about the gospel going to all nations. We are to call them all to come in 
to God's people. We are to say, fear the Lord. Tremble before Christ, who we are told in Colossians 1.15 that by Jesus... All things were created in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created by him and for him and therefore fear him, serve him, love him, trust in him. That is the call of the church. And fear, though the connotation for us typically is negative, here it's not fear of judgment, though that's included as you can see in verse 10 and 11. He brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. So the earth, which is situated in distinct nations across the world, he then, in a a wonderful sort of juxtaposition and calling to fear, at least in our minds, he then, in verse 12, lays out, Blessing, that is promise to the nations. Verse 12 says, the nations are witness, that is, the witness of the church is not only one of judgment, but rather also of promise. The nation that serves the Lord Jesus will be a blessed people. You can tell everybody that. You can say, this nation serves the Lord. It will be Blessed. You could reference other scriptures that Psalm 72 says that under the reign of Christ, the mountains will bear prosperity. The people will blossom in cities like the grass of the field. The righteous will flourish in his day. Peace will abound and all nations will be blessed in him. What is the basis that any of these things will be accomplished? The basis is in verse 10 and 11, both positive and negative. It is in the sovereign will of the Lord. You read there, Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plan of his heart to all generations. That is God's eternal plan. The, The thing that he desires to accomplish will certainly be done. Nothing he desires to do can be opposed or thwarted. He will never say, man, I was hoping to be more successful when I made that plan. (laughs) No, the Lord accomplishes his will in the heavens and the earth. He is sovereign. That means he is the highest and supreme authority over all things. In this verse, wonderfully, it makes my heart sing, says that he will accomplish it throughout all generations. The rest of history, what you will see is what God is purposed to do. Well, here he tells us, tell the world, fear the Lord. Question is, does he want that to be accomplished? Well, let me just assert it in a a dark manner, (laughs) in a different manner. Let me tell you, uh, what what do you think is the biggest obstacle? Uh, A lot of people would say, well, it's the devil, the the devil and and, uh, the power of the world. That that is the largest obstacle. Well, let me just put it this way to you. Hebrews 2.14 memorably tells us that the devil's power to reign to the ruin of God's people was destroyed in Christ's death, where he delivered us from slavery and brought us into the freedom of the sons of God. And that's all according to Genesis 3.15. You can go look at that in your spare time. Calvin makes a great comment on, on uh, what John Owen is famous, famously wrote on. Um, I think the new publication that's in modern English is, is like a bright yellow copy. Uh, the Death of Death. In the death of Christ, he comments uh, because Hebrews asserts that he removed the power of Satan and he is, as first John would say, he's destroyed the work of the devil through his death. Can you imagine that? How how do you do that? (laughs) That, That's his almighty power. Through his weakness, he conquers our greatest enemy. The greatest foe of God is laid low by the death of Christ the son of God. What looks like sure defeat 
to the Son of God is his victory. And so Calvin says this wonderful comment on Hebrews, talking about the power of God to accomplish his purposes, even over our greatest enemy. He says, the tyranny of Satan was abolished by Christ's death, but also that, that is the devil, he himself is laid so prostrate that no more account is to be made of him than as though he were not. <laughs> he, he says that the devil's active and lively and engaged, but the power of Christ is so powerful, it's like he doesn't even exist anymore. That's the power of God on our side and in the world to accomplish his purposes. This is our hope. Now, I'm going to apply this more at the end, this first two sections. But before I do so, let's press on to verse 13 to 19, talking about the Lord looking down from heaven and seeing the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who, observe, or he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds Since God is ultimate in this way, doing whatever he pleases, and he is absolutely transcendent and high and lofty above the creation, our minds can, if normally thinking, we can suggest to ourselves that this causes God to be distant or aloof or something of cold, something like that. And the the psalmist affirms in these verses the exact opposite. It's glorious. He says, yes, he is high and lofty in his heavens. Yet at the same time, he is as close to you as you can possibly imagine. He is imminently near. He's close at hand. The Lord of heaven stoops down to breathe life into every heart of man. This is the glory of God, not only transcendently above, but also as near as our very own heartbeat, our breath, our life. Thus, even a pagan philosopher, which Paul will quote in the Areopagus, said rightly, in him we live and move and have our being. He's, he's not distant. He's near to all of us. Thus, there is a reasoning. So if the nation is blessed to trust in him, then especially for the people of Israel at the time that this would be written, they would have a, a tendency, and you see this all throughout the Old Testament, to, to trust in the security of, of the king or military or whatever, that there is a, there is a um, ongoing error whereby people would look to David apart from what he pointed to, uh, apart from Christ who empowers him and who is the greater David. The, the people of Israel especially would be tempted to look to the things that they could point to, the law, the promises of God, the things that they could see externally, rather than having it become a a heart conviction. God, here's how we reason here. He moves into salvation. And the reason it's, you shouldn't be jarred by that. He's, He's not moving from one subject to another. This is the same subject. That is, this topic is about uh, living the Christian life. This is about singing to the Lord. This is about personal faithfulness, even national uh, gospel faithfulness from, from nations. America used to, used to be that, and maybe we, could, maybe we could get it back. But what this is, is it, it's not enough to trust in those external measures. If we got in this nation a... a a godly Christian ruler, both houses, all Christians, faithful to the scriptures, the same call would be had here. The same call is, it's not enough to trust in horses or princes. Salvation is a personal matter. You and I must trust in the Lord. That is the only way salvation truly comes. Yes, it would be 
on a national level. In fact, one day all nations will serve him. And salvation will be massively global in that sense. But because God created us, it is not enough to rely on those external matters and be unconverted from the heart. Salvation is a ground up reality. The building of God's kingdom is one that starts brick by brick being put into the edifice until the walls encompass all the nations. The kingdom is not a top-down matter. It is a grassroots movement. It's a bottom-up movement whereby you are the living stones that are going into the walls of the kingdom. And it's you and your faithfulness to your spouse that they get saved or are helped in their following the Lord. It is your faithfulness that God blesses in every area of your life whereby the gospel comes alive to people. It is not simply a matter of top-down, but both, uh, we'd love it to be (laughs) top-down, but also bottom-up. That's where the real change happens. In you, you are the living stone, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2. So, what is the church's prayer then in all this? We don't just pray for national peace. We don't just seek to appoint godly rulers, though we are. We ought to do that. However, we ought to be praying for individual salvation and specifically as a church, what is it that we're supposed to focus on? I think that's what comes into view in verse twenty. Through 22. I, I guess let me make a comment here. 18 and 19. Um, real quick. <clears throat> the, the king saves, right? And so the comparison is saving from famine and the Lord keeping his promises, the steadfast love. It is the Lord's promises that deliver. It's the Lord's promises that save. Even if he uses the means of a king, it is nonetheless God's promises, God's faithfulness. That's ultimate. That's just a comment on those two verses. But in 20, 21, and 22, there's only one major call in this text. One thing to do, and it's it's glorious. And there's three clarifying words uh, so that it doesn't um, seem vague or like, well, what do we actually do? Uh, These things will be specified. There's one word. And in Hebrew, if you're, if you're familiar, especially with the Psalms, the, the word that occurs in verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. A, a lot of other times it's translated hopes because it's used almost synonymously with verse 22, even as we hope in you. And, and in light of that, we also should see verse 21, verse 21, 22, and 20. Give one call to to wait, to trust, to hope. These are really just different aspects of one reality. Faith, as you know, Hebrews defines it as hope, (laughs) really. It's it's a sure confidence in God and a hope that is uh, internal. And so hope, trust, faith, hope, uh, waiting. These are all the same reality. It's the one call that the church is called to in this text, <clears throat> and it's described in, in three ways, one in verse 20, one in verse 21, and one in verse 22. The first way, look in verse 20, our soul waits for Yahweh, he is our help and our shield. We must wait on God as our protection. That's, that's the symbol of a, of a shield and a, and a help. We ought to find no other comfort in our heart, but alone in the one who defends us in Christ. He is our saving shield against the world, the flesh, and our very own sinfulness. When we are in the battle against whoever it might be, external foe or the internal sinful nature that you have, you and I both have, We wait for the king on his deliverance of us. We bank on his promises. He is our help 
and our shield. The second way is in verse 21, it says, For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. The name of Yahweh represents all that the scripture says he is. Okay, especially that he is revealed to be specifically for us. And that's what it means. So, so the triune name that is of Father and of Son and of Holy Spirit, that's the, the, the all of God in his three persons. That's what's meant by the name, all of who he is. <clears throat> and specifically, our responsibility is to exercise faith in his attributes. That's who he is, his, his name, his faithfulness his righteousness, and his grace. We need his grace to forgive us and his righteousness to lead us in the right path. Unlike man, who is commonly um, want to change his mind and bears grudges and fights his neighbor out of evil desires, forsakes his companions when they need him, God The triune God is Father, Son, and Spirit is completely holy. He is unlike man. He is incomparably set apart from everybody else in his moral and eternal excellence and virtue. His eternal nature is such that he can accomplish all that he promises we, we can't even, at times, when our, our strongest desires want to be faithful to one promise, we've made it one person, we're so weak that we can't even do that. But God, in his vast arrays of promises, all that he promises to be, not just corporately, but individually, globally, he is so set apart in it that he will in his holy name, accomplish all of these things towards his people. Uh, this is why we are glad in him. I'll speak to that in just a second. Lastly, we're supposed to hope in his promises. Verse 22, let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Uh, steadfast love, or the NASB, I think, says loving kindness. <clears throat> Both the ESV, I think, I think the KJV as well, the more formal of the translations, the ones that are trying to be what you call word for word, um, or if you have the new LSB, um, th- these ones are going to try to translate this word, chesed, uh, loving kindness or steadfast love consistently all the time because it refers to something very specific. It refers to God's unfailing ability to keep his covenant promises. His love, in a way, we could say why you might call it steadfast love instead of like a whole phrase like God's ability to keep his covenant promises. (laughs) Instead of saying it that way, steadfast love, the idea is his love is toward his people is so stable. It's as stable as Christ, the cornerstone of the church. The, the church will be erected because Christ himself is its cornerstone and cannot be crushed or moved or displaced. He is the center of house, the, the household. In, in a way, we can say he will never abandon his covenant. This is the idea. So a, a verse, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, has this beautiful phrase that you should think of when you think of uh, chesed, steadfast love, or loving kindness. 2 Timothy three thirteen says, if we are faithless, which, which is the, our problem, right? We, we think that, um, jeopardizes how, what God's going to do in our lives, right? That's where you have assurance 
shake at times because of your own great sinfulness, right? When, when even you feel the discipline of God or he feels distant in fellowship because you are not walking in faithfulness. In those times when we are faithless, it says, he remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. God's promises are, in a sense, identical with who he is. Unlike us, where sometimes our words are not identical with who we are. We're not as faithful as we claim to be, even, or, or even try to be. And our words might indicate that we are, I will do this, I will not do that, and then you do the opposite. God is totally different than that. Everything he says, he is he is, his outflow is the same thing as he is in his essence, which is glorious. That means when we are failing, he, because of his very own nature, which are revealed in his promises, shows that he is unfailing. You and I so need this from God. And we are to say that it's, let it be upon us, and we're going to hope in you. That, that's, the, that's the call of the church. <clears throat> now, this is an amazing last phrase. In, in verse 21, it says, For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. It's, it's, uh, you could say the, the four might even be better. Uh, it's a, um, in Hebrew, it's a key. Uh, it's, it's like four in our English, F-O-R. Uh, and so it can be seen in various different ways. And here it's really amazing because it's both the reason for the things that came before and it's also the result uh, of, of the action of hope. <laughs> so what, what I mean by that is he's our help and our shield for our hearts gladden him. And our hearts gladden him because he's our help and our shield. It, it, they're mutually informative. That, that is, being glad-hearted is because of who God is. And because who God is, therefore I'm glad-hearted. <laughs> so it's like, it's like the reason and the result. It's really amazing. Indeed, our hearts gladden him because we trust in him. And we trust in him because our hearts gladden him. I, I just can't get over it. It's, a, it's absolutely amazing. It means that we're supposed to be greatly glad-hearted. That's why this is about mirthful songs. Those are the main commands. Mirthful songs are the way you trust. Okay, I'll get there in a second. But the Christian life is designed to be a glad-hearted affair. Okay, if this is not currently happening, which is the case with us, right? Then you're living opposite of what you're designed for or contrary or apart from who you're supposed to be. Okay. Does that make sense? <clears throat> the proper and, and fullness of your sanctification will be glad hearted 100% of the time without ever changing. Okay. In this life, it'll be different. This is what we call fellowship with God. It's the result of knowing who he is. You all have this with your spouse. You have intimacy with your spouse and, and they don't even have to be doing anything. They, they just are something to you. And from that fellowship arises gladness. Uh, my, my wife sometimes will we'll smile in a particular way and it just makes me glad. There's this intimacy of fellowship that we have with God that produces something in the core of who we are and we call it gladness, happiness, joy, all used synonymously. This is why we were saved. This is why we were made. And therefore we're happy. <clears throat> the doctrine here 
that I, that I speak of in terms of fellowship and gladness are like two sides of the same coin. And you've heard me say it a bunch, especially here recently. Uh, in the last two years especially, I think this category has be, like become a functional principle in my mind. And, and so I see it everywhere now. And it's like, it's like when I put on the Calvinist glasses, you, you never can take them off. They're just how you see the world now. And now I see many things through the lens of union with Christ. <clears throat> That's what in Christ means. And I, I just want to describe this glad heartedness, but I'm going to use Lane Tipton because he beautifully puts it here. This is the experience of, of delight in the Lord that's being talked about, <clears throat> which ought to result in singing. Okay, here's the delight part. Your present personal union with Christ is a union that is produced by the Spirit through faith with the person of the crucified and ascended Christ. Listen to this. And it consists in a bond of vital, reciprocal, never-ending, always-ascending fellowship with Jesus Christ in grace in this age and in glory in the age to come. Oh, it's so good. It's so good, I'm going to say it again. Your present personal union with Christ is a union that is produced by the Spirit through faith with the person of the crucified and ascended Christ, and it consists in a a bond, a, a fellowship bond that is vital, means it's alive, it is reciprocal, it's mutual, it is never ending, that is, you have eternal life, eternal fellowship with God now, and it is always ascending, it's always growing. Fellowship with Jesus Christ in grace in this age and glory in the age to come. So beautiful. So <clears throat> here's your exhortation to duty. Trust in what God has said he will do. That's not, that's not hard to say. It's really not all that complicated. But uh, simplicity doesn't make it not hard. <laughs> it's simple. It's actually hard to accomplish. Because you fear. Because you get anxious. You, you have sorrow. You have all sorts of things that plague you. You have sins in your relationships, both that you delve out, that you think, and, and, and the fallenness of yourself and in the world gets in the way, and it causes us to falter in trusting the Lord to do. And, and here, there is the indication and what I've shown really from Acts that we are to pray for the nations specifically to be one and to bow the knee to him. You may think that'll happen in a different way than I do. That's fine. That is what will happen. End of story. All the nations will be under the scepter of Christ. And so we're to pray to that end. However, that unfolds, you think. <clears throat> but are you praying that big? Are you saying, Lord, save America and use me to do it. Use me in my home. Use me in my church. Use me in my society. If you're not praying that big, it's partially because you haven't understood the second and third petition of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's done there. We're praying for it to be done here now currently. And therefore... You should remember that kingdoms are built slowly over time, brick by brick, and that you are living stones in the wall. So have faith in him as you call out to the nations, stand in fear of Christ Jesus. Now, in addition to this, this is called evangelism usually, <clears throat> we have and need renewed ideas from the past concerning who we are supposed to be as a church if we're going to aim at winning the nations from the ground up, 
We need to be calling people into a culture that is practicing singing joyously unto the Lord. So we need to continue to grow in that. Uh, we, we might even need to grow in our ability of, of singing melodies harder, more difficult, more strenuous ones. Because included here is that call. <clears throat> and the, the, th- this is a more fully formed place than I think we're at. However, there is a a goal, a future in mind for the people of God. That is this beautiful picture of a culture producing church where new songs are being made and old ones are being embraced and which exalt the glory of Christ and ascribe the glory to to his name. A, A culture... That is um, happening like that, a difficult culture, is one worth keeping and transmitting to generations. Okay? That's an assertion. I won't prove it. (laughs) I just, easy come, easy go. You you know that. So, if it doesn't take any work, it's probably not all that worth doing. Honestly, like what easy thing in your life is eternally valuable. It's not very much. It's really not. Your relationship with your spouse, which has eternal value for your soul and theirs and your children and their children's children and the society at large, that's hard. But that's eternally value. That's how God made it. God wants us to put our hands to hard things. And currently, if you turn on K-Love, the music there is so shallow typically and so easy that it, that it almost takes no effort to learn or to reproduce. It, it is hard to differentiate many times one song from the other because they all sound the same thing. And you could probably write the lyrics in 15 minutes. Use a rain metaphor, a flood metaphor. <laughs> use, a, use a desert metaphor. I, I've got a recent video from uh, Roy uh, joking about Christian music in this way, <clears throat> just being light and frilly. It, it does not have, consequently, uh, the beauty of a cathedral or a great work of art, an oil painting, and it easily fades away like water, watercolor when, when, when more water is spilled on it. It's just fades, it leaves, it vanishes. We need to create the kind of beauty and to be about the kind of beauty that you are. Like you are so complex and wonderfully made. It's glorious. Your relationship with Christ is described throughout thousands of pages and is not... um, always captured in a, a pithy statement. Uh, your, uh, this cosmos that we look out and see is intricately detailed that we don't know even a fraction of. That's built because God rides through the heavens and plums the depths of the sea. It's created for him and his glory and his greatness. And have songs that don't rise to that that don't plumb the depths of that, that aren't as wide as that. Well, this is the reason that our kids don't care to sing lots of our songs. They're not worth singing. We need to have ones that transcend the ages, ones that are lofty and glorious. And so we need to increasingly adopt a, a, a posture of learning the, the, how to gloriously ride into battle in our, in our lives with new songs from an American hymnal psalter. You'll know that <clears throat> this text is fulfilled when you see a glorious new American hymnal psalter, which has four-part harmonies, which is super hard to sing. has some good, easy stuff too. Uh, but is um, singing about Christ 
as Lord for all and in victory marches and in dirges and in many other sorts of things. When you can walk into uh, a, a, a brewery, a microbrewery like Secret Trail or a local restaurant and hear the people of God breaking out in harmonies in the restaurant. That is what the people of God ought to look like, full of mirthful songs. You know what I I desire and what I'm going to pray about is I desire that none of you have any time to sing Taylor Swift. I, I desire that American culture is conformed not to Taylor Swift. It is right now. It's conformed to all sorts of other ungodly Christian or ungodly unchristian artists. We should be producing as Christians things that are so good that the world who hates you and hates Christ can't help but sing your songs. We, we know what beauty is. Mutilating our children is not beautiful. Killing our children in the womb is not beautiful. <clears throat> Sex outside of marriage and fornication and drug use is not beautiful. No one thinks it is. <clears throat> and the horror uh, that is exalted in the glory senseless brutality that is displayed in our media is because Christians have given up given up the fight, allow the devil to run wild. You, Christian, put your hand to culture creation and see the world one to Christ through that. A people full of mirthful songs. This is the last thing I'll say. Maybe you could stick it in your pocket. I think this is good. A people full of mirthful songs in a sovereign God are those who will slay the greatest dragons. That's what I pray for. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father.